Let's turn our Bibles to Second Kings chapter number ten. Second Kings chapter number ten. And uh I do appreciate all the hard work that went into the event that we had yesterday. And uh Brother Jim, he may have seen Titus two lived out, but uh I, <laughs> I was uh I was thinking more about their theme verse. Uh I looked over at a table and my son, my oldest, who was one of the servers, was sitting there eating crackers. Amen. And I thought of their theme verse, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. So, but I'm glad it was a blessing and uh, I appreciate a lot of people labored very, very much for yesterday to happen. And that means a lot, not only to my wife and the ladies of this church, but it means a lot to me as well. Second Kings chapter number 10. I'd like to begin reading in verse number one. Second Kings chapter number 10. I want to preach to you about a man by the name of Jehu this morning. And uh, some things that he reminds me of, some things we can learn about this moment uh, in Israel's history. Second Kings chapter number 10, verse number 1. The Bible says, and Ahab, now Ahab was the former king. He's been dead for some time, but Ahab had been the former king over Israel. And Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria under the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to them that brought up Ahab's children saying, Now as soon as this letter cometh to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, a fenced city also, and armor, look even out the best and meetest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid, and said, Behold, two kings stood not before him. How then shall we stand? And he that was over the house, and he that was over the city, The elders also and the bringers up of the children sent to Jehu, saying, We are thy servants, and will do all that thou shalt bid us. We will not make any king. Do thou that which is good in thine eyes. Then he wrote a letter the second time to them, saying, If ye be mine, and if ye will hearken unto my voice, take ye the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me to Jezreel by tomorrow this time. Now the king's sons, being seventy persons, were with the great men of the city which brought them up. And it came to pass when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slew seventy persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent him them to Jezreel. And there came a messenger and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay ye them in two heaps at the entering in of the gate until the morning. And it came to pass in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, Ye be righteous. Behold, I conspired against my master and slew him. But who slew all these? Now know uh, that there shall fall unto the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spake concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord hath done that which he spake by his servant Elijah. So Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his kinsfolks and his priests until he left him none remaining. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for your mercy and your favor upon us, Lord. You've been so good to us every step of the way and every day of our life. But Lord, over the past week, you've just been so precious to us. And we want to thank you and praise you for all that you've done in our lives. 
We've come here this morning because we want to hear from you, Lord. Uh, they didn't come because they want to hear from the preacher. Uh, they didn't come because they wanted to hear from the Sunday school teacher, Lord. They, they came because they wanted to hear from you. And I've come today, Lord, because I need to hear from you. So I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would take the administration of this service. Lord, I pray that He would take His sword, which is the Word of God, and wield it deftly. And Lord, I pray that Your will would be accomplished in us. Now, Lord, for some here this morning, uh, if there's any that are lost under the sound of my voice, for them that would mean believing on Christ and being born again and saved. Lord, there could be some whose hearts are stout in rebellion, Lord, and they need to be softened and broken. Some that might be discouraged and disheartened, they need to be uplifted. Some haughty and prideful that need to be abased. But Lord, I know I can trust You, whatever the need is, to minister to the hearts of those that are here. So I pray that You would have Your will and Your way this morning, and that You'd be pleased in our obedience and response. We'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we love You, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Second Kings chapter number 10 details for us a rather gruesome scene in the Word of God. The Bible describes the execution and beheading of these 70 sons of Ahab, the former king over Israel. But if you're a student of the Bible, you know that this moment did not happen overnight. You know that this event did not occur out of the blue. But in fact, there were many things that had led up to this moment, many events that had led to to this place where Jehu is carrying out God's will in destroying the house of Ahab. In all the long history of Israel as a nation, they probably had no more wicked king than Ahab. Him and his wife Jezebel had uh, emboldened Baal worship in the land. They had allowed injustice to run rampant. They had openly despised and persecuted uh, the people of God and the true servants of God. And you know, one of the things I've found to be a truth of life, if you stand against God, God, you ain't going to get away with that forever. Sooner or later, you're going to have to answer uh, for how you've dealt with the Lord and how you've treated the Lord. And so God had proclaimed that because of Ahab's sin, that his house would be utterly destroyed. Now, some long years have passed between when the prophecy was given and on this day when it's being fulfilled. But you know, God, He ain't running on a time clock. He ain't worried about how much time He has. Old Dr. R.G. Lee used to preach a message on this very thing and he called it Payday Someday. Because someday we're all going to have to give an account for how that we've lived. Well, for uh, the family of Ahab, uh, for the widow of Ahab, and for the followers of Ahab, payday has finally come. And Jehu is tasked of God to carry out God's judgment. But I'm interested this morning, not so much in the broader story, but in a statement that's made in our passage. The sons of Ahab are still living, the descendants of him. And they mark and, and, and represent a, a distinct challenge to Jehu's position as the new king over Israel. And so he sends letters to the elders of the city of Jezreel and commands them, or the city of Samaria, and commands them to deliver uh, Ahab's sons. Listen to how he describes this requirement that he places. Verse number 6. The Bible says this, then he he wrote a letter to them the second time to them saying this, If ye be mine, and if ye will hearken unto my voice. 
In other words, Jehu, he wants to know who's really devoted to him. Now you say, well, preacher, that's interesting, but I don't see where this makes any application to my life. Might make a good Sunday school lesson, but how's God going to speak to me? Well, you know, it's interesting when you look at this passage because Jehu is an imperfect and complicated person in Scripture. If you're looking for somebody that is pure as the driven snow, is an unstained hero, someone that's always wearing a white hat, Jehu is not your man. He is a person who oftentimes seems to be violent and volatile. He seems to be somebody who sometimes is carnal and not committed. But just in this passage that we've read this morning, in many ways, Jehu reminds us of Jesus. Now, Jesus never committed a sin. Jesus is not imperfect. And though Jesus is higher than us and His ways higher than our ways. He's not complicated in the sense of being a compromised person. But if we just look at what Jehu was used to do in this passage, we then begin to see some similarities with the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, preacher, give me an example. Well, consider His name, for instance. I don't know if you know this, but the name Jehu literally means Jehovah is He. One of the interesting things when you study names in the Bible is very often there is a, a, we might say an idiom that can be used wherein a name, the definition of it, could almost be inverted. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, for instance, the name Ezekiel, the strength of God, could also be understood as God is strength. The name Isaiah, which means salvation is of God or is of Jehovah, could also be understood as saying Jehovah is salvation. And Jehu, though his name means Jehovah is he. In other words, saying Jehovah is the true God. I'm reminded in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus looked at a group of Pharisees around him and said, I am that I am. In other words, Jesus was not just a human being. He was not just a prophet or a preacher. And of course, He was a 100% man. But at the same time, being a 100% God, He was, listen, not just the Son of God. He was also God the Son. And He made no bones about His identity. He told His followers in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. In John 14.9, He looked at Philip and said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Listen, i got news for you. We may describe the Trinity in some sort of pecking order, but there is no pecking order in the Trinity. God the Son is as much God as God the Father. God the Spirit is as much uh, God as God the Son. And whenever we read Jehu's name, we're reminded that Jehovah would one day be robed in flesh, manifested that the express image of His glory and the brightness of His image, the express image of who He is, would walk amongst men in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at the things that Jehu is used to do in this passage, we're sort of reminded of Jesus. You say, well, what do you mean, preacher? Well, think about this. In what ways does Jehu remind us of Jesus in these chapters, the one prior and the one where we're in? Well, if you were to look a chapter earlier, here's what you'd find. You'd find that he's the divine king. You'd find that Elisha had come and anointed uh, Jehu to be king over the house of Israel. You know, the Lord Jesus, he's also the divine king. He's not just a king, he's the king. Uh, He's not just some king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. So much so that the Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And Jehu, he is the appointed king over God's people. He's the one that is anointed and chosen and endorsed by God Himself. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in a broader sense, is the anointed and appropriate and endorsed king of kings and Lord of lords. 
by no less authority than God from heaven who thrice spoke during his earthly ministry and said, this is my son, my beloved son, my well-beloved son. I am pleased with him. Hear ye him. Hey, listen, this world may be trying to make its mind up about Jesus, but heaven ain't trying to make its mind up about Jesus. Heaven knows him for who and what he is. He's the divine king. Not only is Jehu the divine king in this passage, but Jehu is the dispenser of justice. If you look at the earlier portions back in chapter number 9 of what's taking place here, you'll find that, that Jehu making this demand of the leaders of Samaria, it didn't happen just without any context. After Elisha anointed him to be king over Israel, he also commissioned him to go and to utterly destroy the house of Ahab. Now, much of this was rooted in a sin that Ahab committed, oh, some decades earlier when he stole the vineyard of a man by the name of Naboth. Now, you say... Preacher, why did God care so much about Naboth's vineyard? Because the land didn't belong to the people. The land belonged to the Lord. When you stole from God's people, you were stealing from God Himself. And Ahab stole this uh, from Naboth. And then, uh, so that he could keep the land in perpetuity, he had Naboth slandered, lied against, falsely charged, and executed. God was not pleased with Ahab's actions and God was not idle with Ahab's justice. He sent Elijah, the former prophet, to go even on that very day and to proclaim justice in the ears of Ahab. Then many long years came and Ahab continued to live. In fact, he lived to a fairly ripe old age. You know, and I'm sure people probably thought, well, he got away with it. You know, sometimes we look at the world entrenched in their iniquity and we think, well, you know, preacher, they got away with it, but nobody ever gets away with anything. Long years had passed, but God had already struck Ahab down before this. And then here in chapter number 9, we find Jehu uh, coming uh, to Jezebel, the widow, and in many ways the architect of that crime against Naboth and declaring the judgment of God and commanding the men up in the tower to cast her out of the window. And the Bible says that this was the bringing of the judgment of God on the house of Ahab. When we read what he does to these sons of Ahab, you say, preacher, that's a gruesome and cruel thing to do. It was the judgment of God. Listen, you, you want to talk about what's ugly. You just stand against God. Ugly things will happen. You want to talk about what's cruel. I mean, listen, you stand against the Lord. Make, make God your enemy and stand against Him. And cruel things can happen. And, and when we find this passage, what we see is that Jehu, he, he's not just, uh, just uh, you know, gone off wild. He's not just gone off unchecked. He's not some rogue vigilante, but he is the sword of God. He's the dispenser of God's justice. If I read my Bible right, and I believe that I do, I find in the book of Revelation that whenever the Lord Jesus comes back, He's not coming back as a meek Galilean. He's not coming back as a balm of Gilead to soothe the hurts and wounds of the nations. But He's coming back seated on a white horse with His name written on His thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords, with a sword proceeding out of His mouth, with His vesture dipped in blood. He's coming back as the arm of God's justice on this world. Not only is he the dispenser of justice, but I find he's the dispossessor of thrones. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, you read a little earlier and you'll find that uh, Jezebel and these sons of Ahab weren't the only ones to die on this day. But in fact, Jehu went and under the command of God, he slayed the direct descendant and son of Ahab, Jehoram, the king over Israel. And then he slayed Ahaziah, the king over Judah, because he was in league with Jehoram. It's the reason that these leaders of Samaria say two kings couldn't stand before him on this day. In other words, when their throne stood in the way of his throne, he threw down their thrones. 
I tell you, there's coming a day God is going to topple the powers of this world. Right now they look so foreboding. Right now they look so entrenched. Right now they look so fortified. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes it can be disheartening. Iniquity just seems to prevail and seems to win. But I got news for you. Our king ain't even showed up yet. When he does, there will be no challengers to his authority. There, there's no room except on his throne except for him. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, He's going to put all enemies under His feet. All of them expecting uh, till His enemies be made His footstool. They'll all be put under His feet. When He's whooped them all, He'll whoop death finally. uh, He'll put them all under His feet. He's the dispossessor of thrones. But then after this passage that we've read, Jehu does something very, very interesting. In some ways it's troubling, but you have to remind yourself it's the judgment of God being poured out on the nation. He actually goes to all of the, the idol worshipers, the Baal worshipers, and he calls a great feast in the house of Baal. He says, we're going to have a big party and we're all going to get together and we're all going to worship Baal together. And he gathers all the Baal worshipers from all over the land, gets them in their temple, the house of Baal, locks the door and burns it to the ground. You say, preacher, that's cruel. No crueler than Baal had been. No crueler than idolatry had been to the nation. You say, preacher, that's cruel. He just, he just put those people through the fire like they had put their children through the fire to Moloch. We have a just God, my friend. And we have a lot to answer for, too, in this country. But it's a reminder to me, he's the destroyer of idols. Anything that stood in opposition to the God of glory, Jehu wanted to destroy. Baal worship had been a scourge upon Israel. And he said, there'll be nothing that challenges the authority of God. In many ways, when I read about Jehu, though he's not a perfect individual, and though if you look for flaws, you will find him. I think if we look with the right lens, we see in him a picture of Jesus. Now let's think about verse 6. In verse 6, here's what Jehu does. He requires proof of the devotion of the men of Samaria. He says, you say you're mine, but if you want to know if you're mine, and if you want me to know if you're mine, then there's certain things that you're going to do. He said, preacher, God wouldn't expect that. Well, Jesus did in John 21. He looked at Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love me. He says, if you love me, feed my sheep. I would say this, our love, listen, this is a whole separate message, but our love is calculable. We can tell, we can find out how much we love the Lord. And I'm be honest with you, none of us love Him like we should. None of us love Him like we will one day. Praise the Lord. But that don't mean that everybody loves Him the same. And I'll tell you this, I want to know how much I love Him. Because He deserves to be loved better. And how will I ever know if I'm loving Him to the best of my ability if I'm unwilling to consider how I'm loving Him at all? You see, in this passage, what Jehu demands of them is not inappropriate. The reality is we can measure our devotion to Christ just as these men could measure their devotion to Jehu. And we should measure our devotion to Christ and we should ask ourselves, are we really His? By that, I'm not asking if you're saved or not. I'm asking, are you His man? Are you His woman? Are you His follower? Are you His devotee? We read these uh, passages and Jehu, he wants to know who's really on my side, who's really my person, who really their heart belongs to me. And I want to preach to you on that thought this morning. This question, if ye be mine. Now, how could these men prove this? I want you to notice four things with me and then we'll be done. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. 
The Bible says this. Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria under the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to them that brought up Ahab's children, saying, and notice the challenge that he gives. Now, as soon as this letter cometh to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, a fenced city also and armor, Look even out the best and meetest of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, two kings stood not before him. How then shall we stand? Let me say number one, if you're going to be his, the way that you ought to be. And I'm not talking about whether you're saved or not but I'm talking about whether you're devoted to him, the way that he deserves, the way that we ought to be. I'd say, number one, there's some things you're going to have to recognize. I love this challenge that they received. Uh, Jehu, he sends word, and I don't think Jehu wanted them to take up arms against him, but he was unwilling to negotiate with them. He was unwilling to trade and treat with them. He wanted them to understand that this was not a negotiation. This was not a compromise. This was not a debate. If they wanted to fight him, they could fight him. And they had to recognize at the end of the day that they lacked the strength to fight him. I believe Jehu, if they had wanted to take up arms, I believe he would have fought him. But he didn't issue this challenge and charge because he desired conflict with them. He rather desired for them to recognize that conflict was futile in the first place. Hey, preacher, what does that have to do with my life? Well, here's what it has to do with your life. You're never really going to love Him and serve Him the way that you ought to until you recognize that He is your only hope and help and that without Him you're helpless. Uh, we're, we're all sitting around waiting for God to stroke our ego, to pet on our pride, to help us to feel better. I'm going to be honest with you. God's uninterested in that. If you're unwilling to look at Calvary and know that He loves you, then you won't be convinced God loves you. And if you're going to live for Him, if you're going to serve Him, it won't be under terms of partners. It won't be under terms of uh, people of shared interests, but rather it'll be that of servant and that of master. He tells them, He says, if you're able, do it. If you can find a way to defeat me, find a way to defeat me. And can I tell you this in life? I don't believe God encourages any of us to sin. I don't believe He desires for any of us to be at enmity with Him. But I would say this. We can lay down the biblical gauntlet this morning and say this. If you can find a way to be happy without Him, go ahead and do it. If you can find a way to be content without Him, go ahead and do it. Jehu makes this challenge, not anticipating that they'll fight, but anticipating they'll forfeit and be wise enough to recognize that it would be a futile effort to fight against him. And I'll just tell you this morning, if you think you can find happiness out there, go try to find it and you'll find yourself bankrupt. There's nothing out there you need. There's nothing in the world that you need. There's been plenty of people come back from that battlefield and report that it's nothing but a death scene. But God is not going to bribe you and God is not going to force you. And Jehu was willing to say, if you want to fight, go ahead and fight and I'll fight you. But it'd be better if you didn't. I see the challenge they received, but then they were smarter than that because I see the choice they made. Here's what they said. Behold, two kings stood not before him. How then shall we stand? He's saying, if you think you can take this throne from me, take this throne from me. And they were smart enough to say this, Jehu, it's your throne. And I'm not interested in sitting on it. <laughs> Can I tell you the first step to having a right relationship with God is being willing to say, God, it's your throne and I don't want to sit on it. They said, hey, listen, nobody else could. 
Why would we think we could? And can I just, can I just tell you, I, I could, uh, listen, there's no telling. There's no telling the lives that have been destroyed with the hammer of sin and the anvil of reality as they've been shattered to pieces. We are not without proof that this world does not give us happiness. I don't know if you know this, but we ain't a bunch of rank pagans worshiping the sun and pretending that God is the moon. We have more light and more responsibility and more opportunity than probably any people throughout history and throughout the beginning of time. We don't have to wonder whether peace comes from the Lord. We don't have to wonder whether joy comes from Him. We don't have to wonder whether the world can provide it. It's been proven over and over and over again. Jehu had proved nobody could stand before Him. And can I tell you this? Hey, God has proven that you can't be happy without Him. You can't be satisfied without Him. I mean, listen, the arrogance, the pride it must take. Can you imagine the pride it would have taken for them to say, oh no, we'll fight Him. He's already killed two kings today, but we'll fight him anyway. He said, preacher, that's terrible. Nobody would ever do that. Sure, there's people all the time that say, well, now, everyone else, their life is wrecked by sin, but I'll get involved in sin. Listen, everybody else, their family falls to pieces when they get out of church, but mine won't. Hey, listen, their, their walk with the Lord is destroyed when they're not spending time with the Lord, but it won't happen to me. I love the choice they made here because they're smart enough to know that it'd be better to be on the winning side. I tell you this, there, there's some things that, that they must recognize. I see what they must recognize, but then I like verse 5, I see what they must relinquish. So it wasn't enough just for them to be confirmed of this within their hearts. They then had to confess this to Jehu. The Bible says this, verse 8, He that was over the house and he that was over the city, the elders also and the bringers up of the children, sent to Jehu. And they said three things. The first they said was this, We are thy servants and will do all that thou shalt bid us. The second was this, We will not make any king. And the third was this, Do thou that which is good in thine eyes. I'll tell you this, if you love Him, there's some things you'll give up for Him. That's the truth. That's true of everything in life. Everything that we love, we give things up for that thing. Why would we think, and how have we been so conditioned in this in this environment, this cauldron, this cesspool of cultural Christianity that the West has become, to believe that we could somehow retain all of the all of the things that the world claims for us and still have fellowship with the Lord? Now, the fact is, if you really love Him, you'll be willing to give some things up for Him. If you really love Him, there'll be some things you'll turn over to Him. And I noticed three things they had to relinquish. Number one, they had to relinquish their service. They said, first off, we are Thy servants and will do all that Thou shalt bid us. Let me give you a clear New Testament verse for this. Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You can talk all day long about being spiritual, but if you won't live in obedience to Him, it don't mean anything to God or anybody else. Uh, you can talk all day long about, about being spiritual. You can talk all day long about loving Him. You can talk all day long about church. But if you're not willing to submit your life to Him, then none of it means anything. Uh, if we really love Him, we'll surrender our service to Him. They had to say, Jehu, we're yours. And what that means is, whatever you tell us to do, that's what we'll do. Not only did they have to relinquish their service, but then notice this, they said, we will not make any king. Now, what were they saying? They were saying, we're not going to change our minds. Now, remember, at this time, they don't know they're getting ready to have to slay these 70 sons of Ahab. To their understanding, to their perspective, they're going to continue to live in this place with these 70 heirs or descendants, these challengers to the throne of Israel. And so here's the pledge they make. We are never going to take any of these men 
and take up the sword and charge into battle against you and try to make our own king. We're never going to fill our armies. We are never going to stand against you. We could say it this way. We will never take up sword against you, Jehu. Can I say this? Listen, you really love him. You'll not only relinquish your service, you'll relinquish your sword. Remember years ago hearing an illustration of uh, Horatio Nelson, the British uh, admiral, uh, and I, I, I don't know what battle it was at, but he was battling the French Navy at that time. And uh, he was in a, a fierce uh, naval battle with a uh, French admiral. And uh, after the battle was over and uh, Admiral Nelson had won the day, this French uh, admiral came over and boarded his ship to come over and make surrender to him. And whenever this French admiral boarded his ship, he walked up to Admiral Nelson and he stuck out his hand to meet with him on on equal terms and to shake his hand and to congratulate him for winning the day. And it said that Admiral Nelson was standing there with his hands behind his back. And when the fellow came up and stuck his hand out and wanted to shake his hand, Admiral Nelson just stepped back and looked at him. And the man was sort of alarmed at this. He he stood back and he said, I'm sorry, what's wrong? I've, I've come to surrender. And this is what he said. He looked at him and he said, your sword first, sir. Amen. The fellow said, what do you mean? He said, we cannot be friends until you've laid your sword down first. You lay your sword down and I'll accept your surrender and we can treat together. But until you lay your sword down, we cannot be friends. Your sword first, sir. I tell you what a lot of us need. We need to give our sword first. We need to give our will. We need to give our authority. We need to give our decision making. We need to give our hostilities over to God. And here's what they're saying. We'll not take up arms against you. We pledge ourselves as your leal servants and we're willing to serve you no matter what it takes. I'll tell you this, and I understand we are fellow laborers with the Lord, but ain't none of us co-partners with Him. We are not shared investors in a common venture. And this is what a lot of people think of Christianity. They think that it, they think Christianity is just willing to be co-partners with God in this matter of life. I'll still do what I want, but you know, I'll give God my Sundays and He'll make sure that it's always shining when I want to play golf and that my paychecks always stretch far enough and that, you know, I stay healthy. That's not what God is offering you. What God's offering you is this. You give Him your sword and He'll be your king. You give Him your sword. You surrender your life to Him. And He will take control of it and live it better than you ever could. They had to give their sword. And then I see this. I like the last phrase they give. Do thou that which is good in thine eyes. They didn't know what that might mean when they made that offer. You understand that statement in the context, right? When they're saying, do thou that which is good in thine eyes, what they were saying is we are placing ourselves entirely at your mercy. We are giving you our swords. We are giving you ourselves. And whatever you choose to do with us, that's fine with us. We could say it this way. They had to relinquish their sovereignty. There was every reason to believe that Jehu would have stormed through those gates and killed every one of them. And when they said, do thou that which is good in thine eyes, they were saying, if that's what you want to do, that's what you need to do. In other words, they were saying we are completely yours. We are at your disposal, whatever that means. We're yours in life. We're yours in death. We cast ourselves shipwrecked upon the rock of your mercy and we're trusting you, whatever you decide. I tell you, if you really love him, you'll trust him. If you really love him, you'll trust him. Now, love and trust have to walk the same path. They have to live in the same space. 
It's hard to love people that you can't trust. If you really love Him, you'll trust Him. You'll trust Him the way Job did. Job said this, though He, though he slay me. Though He slay me. Yet will I trust in Him. Hey, would you love Him even if He did all those things you're praying He won't let happen? Would you love Him anyway? Would you love Him even if the thing that you fear the most He allowed to happen, would you still love Him? I'll tell you this, if we love Him the way that we ought to love Him, we'll yield our sovereignty up to Him and say, Lord, your King, your God, your Lord, whatever you want for my life, that's what I want. <laughs> One of the reasons Job weathered his storm is he was content to have whatever God wanted him to have. Oh, I'm sure he wanted healthy children. I'm sure he wanted full coffers. I'm sure he wanted uh, loaded grain bars, I, 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 barns. I'm sure he wanted all of those things. I'm sure Job desired those just like we do. But Job had made up his mind that he wanted God more than he wanted any of those things. And if he had to give all those things up to have the presence of God in his life, so be it. If he had to die in the process, if that was what God wanted, God knows best. We've got to be willing to give Him our sovereignty. I see what they must recognize. I see what they must relinquish. But look at verses 6 and 7. It don't end there. Now, we'd like to think Jehu would have said, Okay, I'll take you at your word. That's good. That's enough. But that's not what Jehu did. Verse 6, then he wrote a letter the second time to them, saying, If you be mine, and if you will hearken unto my voice. Here's how you can prove it. He says, Take ye the heads of the men, your master's sons, Come to me to Jezreel by tomorrow this time. Now the king's sons, being 70 persons, were with the great men of the city. Listen to this. Which brought them up. And it came to pass, when the letter came to them, that they took the king's sons and slew 70 persons and put their heads in baskets and sent him them to Jezreel. Preacher, that's gruesome. Yeah, it is. Preacher, that's cruel. Yeah, it is. Preacher, those men didn't do anything wrong. They are just born into the wrong family. Yeah, you're right. And none of that mattered. You know why? Because they were challengers to Jehu's throne. Can I tell you how to... I will help your Christianity out a lot years right now. If you would quit looking at your life in terms of, can God nail me to the wall over this matter? And ask simply this one question. Does this challenge His throne? you'd find that your life would go a lot smoother. We treat God like some kind of litigation attorney that we're trying to duke it out with and see if we can manage to keep as much of the world as we can and still call ourselves Christians. But if we'd instead look at it and say, does it challenge His authority? Is it a threat to His throne? I see this. I see what they must remove. And let me just say it real simply this way. The challengers had to be slain. Each of these 70 men represented a threat to the throne of Jehu. Each of these 70 men represented a challenge to his authority and to his kingdom. And so if they wanted to prove that they really loved Jehu, that they were really his, that they were really loyal, they'd take everything that challenged his authority and destroy it. Can I tell you in your life, every time you engage in sin, you've engaged in a challenger to the throne. Every time in your life you put something in competition with the Lord, you've let a challenger, a pretender to the throne live in your life. Any time in your life that you prioritize anything above Him and His will, you've allowed one of Ahab's sons to go free. 
you really are His, here's what you'll do. You'll take all those things that might take your love from Him. All those things that might challenge His authority. All those things that might grieve Him and might shame Him. And you'll put them to the sword and you'll summarily execute them. I, I think about three things. You still all right with me this morning? I think about three things when I read this. I think, number one, about the agony of the decision they had to make. Several times in this passage, the Bible tells us this, that they brought these men up. Now, you understand what that means. After Ahab is slain, he still has these 70 sons, but it is not safe for them to dwell in Jezreel any longer. And so they are sent to the palace, to Samaria, and they are brought up under stewards that are seen to their care. The men that put these men to the sword were not people that were cold and indifferent and calloused and uninterested. These were their tutors, their teachers, their nurses. These were the people that had protected them and watched over them. These were people that had changed their diapers, people that had watched them take their first steps, people that had taught them to ride and to hunt and to fight, people that had watched them grow into adulthood and had watched with pride as they became fine young men capable of taking a throne because they believed that one day they would. And now Jehu says, if you really love them, take off their head. I'll tell you this, your flesh gets mighty attached to your sin. We have fond feelings about our sin. The things that we indulge in, the things that we allow in our life, the things that that give challenge to the authority of Christ, they never look wicked to us. They never look dangerous to us. They never look vile to us. And I'm sure when these people looked and saw these young men, they didn't just see the young men. They saw the children they had been. But when Jehu saw them, he saw them as men that one day might march at the head of an army to try to destroy him and take his throne. And he said, I don't see what they were and I don't even see what they are. I see what they can become and it's too dangerous. Must have been agonizing. There's nothing God will ask you to give up that won't take giving up to give up. There's nothing God will ask of you that will be easy to give up. Because chances are if He he did, He'd have never had to ask you in the first place. And I'll tell you, there will never be a trip to the altar that doesn't involve a certain measure of buffeting the flesh. There'll never be a surrendering of your heart and your sword to the Lord that doesn't involve a certain measure of agony. I think of the agony of this decision, but then I think of the severity of it. We wouldn't have tolerated this in our modern, enlightened, progressive society today. We would have just, you know, sent them for, I don't know, we would have just sent them into exile somewhere and put them up in a four-star resort somewhere and they would have had all their needs. They'd have been playing, playing badminton and Marco Polo in the pool somewhere. But that's not what Jehu says. Jehu says this, as long as they live, they're a threat. I want you to listen to me. As long as they live, they're a threat. They may not look threatening now. And you might look at it and say, well, why is Jehu so worried about these exiled sons of Ahab? They're no real threat to him. Oh, they might not have been on that day, but one day they would be. And so he says, cut them all off. See, here's what you think. You think, well, this little sin ain't hurting nobody. This little sin, ain't, it, ain't, it, ain't really, it ain't really disturbing anything. I, look, I'm, I'm in church today. Can't be that bad. I'm in church and, and I enjoyed the singing and, 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 and people shook my hand and everything was fine. I mean, it's no big deal. It's not really a problem, is it? Yes. Yes, it is. Because you ain't seen what it'll grow into. 
Even in its current state, it grieves the heart of God. He died for that sin. That thing that you won't let go of put Christ on the cross. And if it had been the only sin ever committed by one person, only you in all of human history, it would have still been enough for Him to go to the cross of Calvary, both in terms of the rigor of God's law and of the redemption of God's love. He would have still gone to Calvary for that one sin that you're hanging on to. But even beyond that, you don't know what it will become yet. Jehu, I mean, this was a severe decision. Christianity... Christianity is an extreme thing. It is. It's not a casual thing. That's what's killing Christianity today as whatever we want to call it, a, a you know, a, a movement or I don't know what you'd really call it. Whatever this world has that it calls Christianity, the reason it's dying is because it's casual. It's flippant. It's barely there. It's superficial. It's a mile wide and a quarter inch deep and there's no substance or depth to any of it. It doesn't even pierce below our Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. And that's why it doesn't change this world around us. But the truth of the matter is, hey, he asked a severe thing. But I would say this, I see not only the severity, I see the necessity of it. Because sooner or later, one of them boys would have raised himself up and said, let's go take back our daddy's throne. God, listen, Jehu didn't ask this because he was mad. He even says later on in this passage, I conspired against my master. What he's saying is, I killed Jehoram, one of the, the sons of Ahab. I served in Ahab's army. I was his general. I was his follower. I was his devotee. But when the Lord came and said, I'm done with Ahab, slay him, Jehu said, I will because it's necessary. And now he's looking at these men and he's saying, I don't do this out of malice or cruelty. I do it because it's necessary. For the peace of Israel, it's necessary. For the peace of the people, it's necessary. For the, for the, for the country to march on and go forward for the Lord to be pleased and blessed and favor us. It's necessary. And I wish I could get you to understand. Listen, the preacher don't stand up and preach against your sins because he's bored and has nothing to talk about. The preacher don't get up and preach against your sin because he's mad at you and he wants to make you feel bad and make you feel that big. We preach the truth of the Word of God because it's the only saving hope and help for us. It's the necessity of it. You want your life to be anything that God's pleased with and anything that you're pleased with the outcome with. And you're going to have to take those sons and take off their heads. I, I, I see this in this passage. I, I see what they must recognize and what they must relinquish and what they must remove. But then notice finally, and I'm done, something interesting happens in verses 8 through 10. The Bible says this. There came a messenger and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And this is what he said. He said, Lay ye them in two heaps at the entering in of the gate until the morning. It came to pass in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, Ye be righteous. Behold, I conspired against my master and slew him. But who slew all these? Know now that there shall fall unto the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spake concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord hath done that which he spake by his servant Elijah. I see this. If they're really going to be his, I see what they must remember. Why did Jehu do this? Well, Jehu understood that he was in a delicate political situation. It could very easily look that he was just a rogue agent. It could look like he had just decided that he wanted to assume the throne. And that this was not divine justice, but just a clever coup that he had enacted. 
It could look like he of his own volition had gone and had Jezebel cast out the window, shot the arrow through Jehoram, slain Ahaziah, consolidated power, and took the throne for himself. And here's what he needed. He needed people to understand that this wasn't just him. Even the people understood that this was right. So he piles those heads at the entering end of the gate. And when the people gather together, and by the way, he's in Jezreel. He's in the place that is very friendly towards Ahab, in the place where Jezebel had lived and where they had had a palace. Whenever they come out and they begin to talk about what happened, here's what he says. He says, you know, you could be right. It could just be me. You're righteous. I'm not. And I slew my master. And I'm just low down snake. But the problem with that is, who killed all these people? Even in Samaria, they know that Ahab's day is done. The preacher, what does that have to do with me? I mean, what does that suggest? We do a real similar thing. We don't take severed heads and pile them up at the gate. Well, you know what? I'm not going to judge what you do in your personal time. People have different interests, but generally that's not what we do. But here's what we do. We take, <laughs> we take the trophies of the things that we've surrendered to Him. We come down at an altar, and in a very public way, and I don't mean standing up and giving a speech or telling others, but galvanizing in our own heart and mind that we're doing business with God, we kneel down and we say, Now, Lord, here they are. I surrender to You. I've given You my service, my sword, my sovereignty. I've acknowledged that that old regime was broken, that the flesh can't satisfy And that you and you alone are right and you and you alone give peace. And that way, every day of our life when we wake up, we have to walk by the memory of that experience and be reminded that no matter how good sin looks, there was a moment when we despised it. No matter how attractive disobedience may look, there was a moment we were grieved by it. No matter how joyful the pleasure of sin may be for a season, we remember a time when in bitterness and gall we knelt broken on an altar and wept before God and said, God, I'm broken. I need you to take this from me. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I'm miserable. I can't live this way. God, give me peace. God, give me joy. God, give me relief. We have to remember. Listen, I'll say it this way. I see the testimony of the heads. They had to be reminded that even they admitted at one point that that old kingdom and that old king and that old regime shouldn't be ruling over them. If we're going to maintain our devotion to the Lord, we have to be consistently reminded of the, the end of sin, the misery of it, the brokenness and bankruptness of it. We have to be reminded of the bitterness of it. We have to be reminded, hey, there was a time. Hey, if you're here saved, and I'm not going to ask for raised hands at this moment, but if you're here saved, then at some point, you took the heads of your life and slew them and laid them before God. At some point, if you're saved here today, you were through with sin. You were tired of the devil's lies. You came to God and said, Lord, I'm broken. I can't save myself. I need your help. I need your salvation. I need your forgiveness, your redemption. At some point, you did that if you're saved here today. And every day in your life, as you surrender your heart to the Lord, more and more you are putting milestones of remembrance. They had to remember the testimony of the heads. But then look at verse 10. He says this, Know now there shall fall unto the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spake concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord hath done that which he spake by his servant Elijah. They had to be reminded of the truth of the word. They had to be reminded 
that though time may march on, sooner or later, the Word of God was going to be proven to be true in their lives. We always, I I know this is true of me, and and I I know it's true of you, because you're flesh and blood just like I am. Every one of us, when we get involved with sin, we always imagine and dream to ourselves that somehow we'll get away with it. It won't affect me. It won't hurt me. I'll manage my way around it. It won't won't affect my life. I won't suffer for it. And here's what Jehu needed them to understand. The message was not whoever stands against Jehu gets killed. The message was what the Lord says is true is always true. He wasn't saying put yourself on the side of Jehu. He was saying put yourself on the side of the Lord. Walk with God. Put yourself, don't make yourself an enemy of the Lord. And, and even in this demand, he was not saying, I'm Jehu, worship me. He was saying, God put me on this throne, and if you stand against me, you're standing against God. Right. I'll tell you this, listen, the sweet Holy Ghost, when He convicts us, we need to understand ignoring Him is ignoring God. Right. When the Word of God rebukes us, ignoring this is ignoring God. And sooner or later, our life will have to reckon with the truth and the authority of the Word of God. You say, preacher, I'm His. Are you? Do you know that? Can you prove that by your life? If you can't, you know what I think you ought to do? Take all those challengers to the throne and lay them at His feet today. Take that sword, lay it at His feet today. Take that sin, lay it at His feet today. Surrender it to Him. Ask Him forgiveness. Confess it before Him. Acknowledge it and ask Him to cleanse you of it. I believe He deserves for us to be His. He bought and paid for us on the cross of Calvary. And I think most people here today want to believe that they are the Lord's servant. They want to believe, I'm His. I don't belong to the world. I don't belong to anything else. I am the Lord's. Well, here's the question. Are you honest enough to look at your life and assess it in the light of the authority of God's Word on the matter? I hope you'll do that this morning. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. If God has spoken to your heart, would you meet Him down here? I'll not ask you to give a speech or get up and stand and say a bunch of things. I just want to ask you to be obedient to the Lord this morning. If He's dealt with you about some matter, would you meet Him down in this altar? Hey, bring that sword, lay it at His feet. Bring that sin, lay it at His feet. Bring that that pretender, that challenger to the throne. You say, but preacher... It's not wrong, but is it taking you away from the Lord? Is it distracting you from Him? Is it striving and fighting for the place in your heart that He belongs in? Won't you come and lay it at His feet? Father, bless this invitation. Lord, I love you. I ask it in Christ's name.